0: My sermon this morning, it's the second sermon in a series we're having about the Bible. What we're seeing is that one of the central, controlling, foundational, basic beliefs of Christianity is that the Bible is the true story of the world. And it is authoritative for all of life today. Take that away, and you no longer have Christianity. You have a shell game, but you don't have Christianity. You have, an, you have a new religion. Now, last week was about this notion of authority. How can we say that the Bible's authoritative? The authority of Scripture. This week is about the first half of my statement The Bible's the true story of the whole world, it's authoritative for all of life today. Last week was about authority. This week's about the story. The Bible is a story. The true story. I just read to you from Luke chapter 24 verses 13 to 36. Two people walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. From one city to another that's about seven miles away. It's probably a husband and wife. Cleopas... And Mary. They're scared. And they should be. Rome has just slaughtered Jesus. Because he was leading a movement. That was a threat to Pax Romana. The public peace. And once a troublesome movement was identified. The order of the day. Was to slaughter the leader. And as many of the followers. As you could find. So see this couple. Getting out of Dodge. Right? Hightailing it out of Jerusalem. See them in your imagination. Can you see them walking? Shoulders slumped. Not just with fear, but with despair, sadness. Then Jesus joins them. But they don't know it's Jesus. That's what it says, right, in verse 16. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He asks them what's going on. So they tell him. And notice. They know the story of Jesus' life. They know all about him. They know this stuff. His miracles. His teaching. His crucifixion. They even know about the resurrection. But still. They're deeply confused. So what does Jesus do? Well. He has a little Bible study with them. Look at verse 27. Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. Now that's really interesting. This couple, they're Jews, they had read, studied, the Old Testament, for their whole lives. They had been taught it by parents who had been taught it by parents. They were in a culture that was saturated with these stories. Pop culture today, their pop culture was the language and the literature of the Old Testament. But they had been reading it the wrong way. So Luke says that Jesus interpreted to them all the things about himself throughout the Bible. And then later on, of course, in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. The point is, we can only know Jesus. We can only recognize him for who he truly is when we see him within the context of Of the Old Testament. We can only really know the true Jesus. When we see him within the context of the larger story that scripture tells. If we do not understand scripture as a single unified story. We will misunderstand Jesus. That's the point of it. They didn't recognize him. Jesus' response is to teach them how the Bible shows who he is. If we do not know the single unified story of the Bible, we can't know who Jesus is. And if we do not know and love Jesus, we cannot understand the story of the Bible. It's a circular issue. When it comes to Christianity, the Bible is at the center. And when it comes to the Bible, everything depends on Jesus. So without Jesus, the Old Testament can't be read correctly. And without the Old Testament, Jesus can't be seen correctly. Jesus is the clue to the Bible. The Old Testament by itself is not Christian scripture. The New Testament without the Old Testament is not Christian scripture. It is only Christian scripture when Christ causes you to read it as one story. We don't read the Old Testament truthfully unless we read it as the Old Testament which is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And we do not read the New Testament truthfully unless we read it as the New Testament which is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Let me put it another way. You can do a lot of things with this book. But the only way to read it Christianly, the only way to use this book in a Christian way is if you believe that the whole of the Bible tells one story centered on Jesus. Anything else is a non-Christian use of the book. So, when Grace read to us from Acts chapter 2, the very next verse, so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Not they devoted themselves to the Bible, not they devoted themselves to the Old Testament. They devoted themselves to learning to read this book in the way that Jesus taught the apostles to read it. This is what they were so deeply devoting themselves to. It's not the Bible, but a particular reading of the Bible. They were reading the Bible. They were learning it as a single story about Jesus Christ. That is the first thing we are told about the first church. And it is what the church has always done. So long as it's faithful. Don't do that. And the church is unfaithful. And it will soon lose the essence of what it means to be a Christian church. Let's be a faithful church. Let's do that. Let's devote ourselves to this way of reading the Bible. Let's learn to read the Bible this way. Let's learn how all of these, this really complex book with poetry and history and laws and all kinds of stuff. Let's learn to read it as a single story, the true story of the world. By seeing Christ as the clue to it. Christ as the the frame, the lens, the center that takes this book filled with different types of literature. Christ is what turns this book into a single story. To say the Bible is a single story, that's not a literary comment. That's a theological comment. Christ is what made the Old Testament the Old Testament and the New Testament the New Testament and knit it all together. In Christ, this is one story. That's complicated. We've got to devote ourselves to that. We've got to learn to read it that way. So what I'm going to do for the next few minutes is I'm going to offer you a very handy tool. A tool that can help us read the Bible like Christians. First, I'm going to explain the tool, and then I'll show you how it works. Okay, here's the tool. The tool is this. It's a five-act play. You know, like Shakespeare, Macbeth, Romeo Juliet. A play structured by five acts. You see, since the 2nd century BC, so 2200 years ago, here in the West, we've been telling stories in a particular way. We've been telling stories with the structure of five acts. From the Romans, to Shakespeare, to, I don't know, if you watch TV today, Law and Order, Justified. What we've learned as a Western culture is that of the many ways you can tell a story... One of the best ways is to let it unfold in five acts. In your worship guide, there's an insert. If you have it, go ahead and and get it out. It it looks like this. On one side, it says the drama of scripture. If you look down the left-hand side of that, you'll see in bold print, act one, act two, act three, act four, act five. Now look at the tiny italicized print. Sorry, some of you who have not yet gotten your bifocals. You know you should have brought them. Now you're wishing you did. You might need to do like this. In the traditional Western mode of storytelling, the first thing that happens in a story, act one, we meet the major characters and it's stable. Life is the way it should be. Act 2. Conflict. The stable situation of Act 1 is disrupted by a conflict. Act 3. The conflict grows. It intensifies. It gets complicated. But a way forward is identified. Act 4. The climax. The conflict reaches its highest point of tension. Act 5. The implications of the climax are worked out. Have Have you ever seen the TV show Law and Order? You could set your watch by law and order, right? The first scene is going to be some couple on a date. Everything is as it should be. There's nice music. They're romantic. They're smoochy, smoochy. They're walking home from the date. Suddenly, there's a dark alley. They look down the dark alley. The bad music starts, and there's a dead body, legs sticking out from under a dumpster. That's act two, conflict, right? The date has been disrupted. And then you enter the longest part of any story, Act 3. It's always the longest part. Longest, it's where things get complicated, you know. The key witness um, leaves town. The judge is corrupt or whatever. It just gets darker and darker and darker. But you keep getting these glimmers of the way forward. That's Act 3. Then Act 4 is the climax. It's where the, the, the conflict reaches its highest moment. And you could just set your watch. You watch Law and Order. It's going to happen at the same moment every week. But it's endlessly creative, Right? In Act 5, you live out. Now, if it's, a, if it's a tragedy, the the implications of the conflict are really bad, right? Um, if it's a comedy, then the conflict turns good and you end up better off than you were in the for- first place. Jane Austen, I don't know, just go on down the road. Now, take this note sheet and get a Bible. If you have a Bible, open it to the table of contents. If you don't have a Bible and your neighbor does, just take it from them and... Um, <laughs> Look at the table of contents. For those of you who use these strange electronic devices, ha! I've been picking on you for years and now you're just going to be lost, all right? All right. You need to get a real Bible, a holy Bible. If you're new to the Bible, um, that's all right, turn to the table of contents. Let's map this out. Let me show you how this works. Act 1. This happens in the book of Genesis. Now, it's only the first two chapters of Genesis. You meet the major characters. Who are the major characters in the first two chapters of Genesis? God, humans, and there's a third major character. Creation itself. The natural world. That is not the stage that the play plays out on. Nature is, is a major character before humans ever show up. Six times God says it's good. Right? Before humans ever get there. There are three major characters. Life is the way it should be. Now, a description for this particular act in the Bible is the title that that we put there in the note sheet. In this moment, God establishes his kingdom. If you're filling blanks, there's a blank there to fill in. All right, that's act one. Meet the major characters. Life is good, right? Shalom is the word in the Bible we describe for that moment. Act 2. Now, Act 2 in the Bible, this happens from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 11. If you borrowed your neighbor's Bible, just write that on the top of those pages, all right? Act 2. This is conflict. There's a triple play of evil in Genesis 3 to 11. In chapter 3, there's the evil of human rebellion. Then we get the evil of. Of wickedness in the story of Noah. Then we get the evil of arrogance in the Tower of Babel. This triple play. Genesis 3 to 11. This is, this is the fall happening one, two, three times. It messes up Shalom. Life is not the way it's supposed to be. Did you watch the movie Noah? Who wants to live in that, right? Oh, it's awful. All right. So this is, the, this is rebellion in the kingdom. Shalom is disrupted. Act 3. Always along as part of a story. Act three goes from Genesis 12 to the end of the Old Testament. That's a book called Malachi. All of that is Act three in the drama. The conflict intensifies. It grows. It grows. It spreads. It, it gets more and more complicated. And yet, throughout this act, we see the way forward. God chooses Israel. That's the solution. That's the way forward. Act 4, the conflict reaches its highest point in the Bible. That's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All the strands of evil in human history come crashing in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John onto the person of Jesus Christ. This is the climactic moment. Now, these are sort of like biographies. But they're biographies with a serious agenda. Now, this is so important. All four of the Gospels are telling the life of Jesus, the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of the plot line that started in Genesis. They all start out by saying, Jesus, the son of Matthew, the son of of Abraham. Uh, John starts out by quoting the first verse of the Old Testament. Luke starts out by doing a genealogy of Jesus. It goes all the way back to Adam. All four gospels start by saying to you, the reader, you're jumping into the middle of a story. Jesus can only be understood as the fulfillment of this plot line. Now, this is the coming of the king. The climax of the story of the Bible is when God himself takes on human flesh and walks among us. And it provokes all of this evil into a final showdown. Act 5. This is the resolution. This is the book of Acts through most of Revelation. The implications of Jesus' life are worked out for all the characters of the story. For humans and for nature. It's all worked out. The implications of the life of Jesus. Now, how is the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, how is that worked out in Act 5? Through the church. Through the mission of the church on your note sheet. This is spreading the news of the king. This is where we live in the drama of scripture. We live in act 5. We don't live in act 3. That's why some parts of the Old Testament get modified in the New Testament. Because we live in a different moment in the drama. Now act 6. Now. I said at five-act play yeah, that every model has its limits. And when we're thinking about the Bible and learning to read it as a single story, some friends of mine have pointed this out, that it's helpful to recognize that the story of the Bible does not conclude at the end of act five. Nor is the working out of the climax this smooth resolution. No, the resolution has taken place in Christ. The conflict continues and it actually intensifies. But God has something else He's going to do. He's going to reconcile the whole creation to Himself. He's prepared another act, unlike anything we've ever seen or imagined, where the curtain of history will never close. If you're taking notes, this is Acts 6, the return of the king. So, I haven't told you the story of the Bible. I've just given you a a way of, of learning to read this really big complex book. And learning to see it as a story about Jesus. The Bible tells a story. The true story of the whole world. After all, the Bible starts with in the beginning. That's a clue. What you're about to read is a story. Right? Stories have beginnings. They have middles. They have ends. But the Bible not only tells a story, what I've been saying last week and this week already is that the story is authoritative for all of life today. But how is that? How does the story the Bible tell, how does it function with life-giving, creation, healing, authority, and power? Look at it this way. There have been two parts to my sermon so far. For the first, I showed how Scripture, that the only way to read the Bible as Christians is to see that it tells a single story centered on Jesus. And then I walked through a way of reading the Bible like that. Now, for the third part of the sermon, let's see how reading the Bible that way opens up the power of the Bible, the authority of the Bible. Now, with some issues, like worship... Sexuality, forgiveness, family life. The Bible gives some very detailed instructions. And when the Bible does that, we should take them with the utmost seriousness and yield to them. But for most things, the Bible doesn't give detailed instructions. Most of your questions... Most of your problems, search this book all day long, and you will not find detailed instructions for what to do. Because the Bible fundamentally isn't about instructions for how to live. What is the Bible fundamentally? It's a story. Parents, there are moments in the life of your children where you give them instructions. Go brush your teeth. Here's how you brush your teeth. Take a bath. Here's how you take a bath. One of our children... um, We noticed that... Bath time wasn't as effective... As we were hoping it was. And we were like... Are you washing your whole body? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we discovered... This particular child... Very young... Thought body meant... Just the stomach. (laughs) I'm, I'm washing my whole body. So we had to enter into a set of detailed instructions. And... Oh, that the Bible would do that. But for most things, it doesn't. To say that the Bible is fundamentally not command, but it is fundamentally story, means we need to think about how the Bible has authority in our lives from a different angle. With commands, you obey. With a story, you don't obey. How do stories want function with authority? Now, this is kind of thick. And complex, but stay with me here. Your family tells lots of stories. You know, my family, when we eat at Thanksgiving time, we tell the same stories every year. Right? We sit in the same place, same dishes. And what's happening when our family does that? We're learning what it means to be a Spears. We're not getting specific instructions. This is what we're getting. We're getting a way of being in the world. An orientation to the world. A worldview. The way the Bible functions with authority at its root level is that it gives us the proper view of the world. It shapes us to see the world in a certain way. Let me tell you a story. I didn't make up this analogy, a very, very smart person did. It's so helpful. Imagine for a moment that we discover. A never-before-known play written by Shakespeare. Right away we know, oh, God! you know, Shakespeare wrote another play we didn't know about. And it's it's amazing. There's one problem. Five-act play, like Shakespeare's plays. Final act has three scenes. That's the way it goes. The middle of the final act is missing. Gone. We, We don't have it. All of Act 1 is there, meet the major characters, life as it should be. All of Act 2 is there, conflict. All of Act 3, the biggest part of the play, it's there, where the conflict grows and gets intense. Act 4 is there, where there's enormous where it kind of reaches this climactic moment. Act 5 is there, the beginning of it, where they're working out the implications of the conflict. Then there's a huge missing section. And then we've got the very end of it. So what would we do with this play? Do a thought, do an imaginary game with me. What if we took this play, 90% of it there, and we gave it to a group of actors who were Shakespeare actors? They had been for decades, and they knew the work of Shakespeare better than you know your family story. They knew it inside out. What if we give it to these professional Shakespearean actors, and we say to them, take this play, study this play, write papers, have conferences, Immerse yourself in this play and stage it. Put it on. And what we want you to do when you get to the bit that's missing is make it up. Improvise. Improvise what you know would be there. Because you know how Shakespeare writes. Not only do you know how he writes overall, you know the plot. And you need to improvise a piece that fits perfectly, that's true to the story that's been leading to that moment and true to the bit we have at the very end where it ends, right? Figure out the puzzle. That's how we need to understand the Bible. Most of what you face today, the Bible doesn't talk about. But that doesn't mean the Bible's irrelevant, If you can't find a command for your situation, that doesn't mean the Bible doesn't have anything to say. No, here's what you do. You immerse yourself in the Bible. You learn it. Right? This is how jazz works, right? In in, in jazz, right, you establish a melody. You establish a theme. And then the trumpet passes it off to the saxophone. And what does the saxophonist do? Very creative, improvises, but they have to be true to the key, to the rhythm, to the melody. And then they hand it off to somebody else. There's a lot that we're facing today that the Bible doesn't talk about. What do we do? We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We immerse ourselves in this way of reading the Bible that centers on Jesus. We know where the story is going to end. Revelation 21, 22, Isaiah 55. Romans chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I preach on this stuff all the time. You come in essentials, I assault you with it for five weeks. We know where it started. We know where it's going to end. But we live in a moment the Bible doesn't say a thing about how to deal with a drug-addicted child. Nowhere in the Bible... Does it ever conceive of democracy? The dominant political reality we live in? Completely foreign to the Bible. The Bible talks about poverty, says a lot about it. But how does that work out in life today with the political realities of today? The Bible doesn't tell us. So what's our job? Our job is to immerse ourselves in it, to learn the story really, really good so that when, when the melody is passed off to the Church of the Incarnation, when the melody is passed off to Indy, when we pick up the melody, we improvise faithfully. We figure out the challenges we're, we're facing in a biblical way. Now, I'm not talking about the easy stuff. You don't have to pray about if it's right to steal your neighbor's car right? The Bible's pretty specific about that. Thou shalt not steal. All right? That doesn't take any improv. Just <laughs> obey that. You know, the, the simple stuff of the Bible, you just obey it. Let me give you an example. The issue of gay marriage in America today. The Bible's clear. Sex is a gift from God. It is only righteous and legitimate between a man and a woman who are married every other instance of sex is wrong evil and wicked that's what the bible says look there are things in the bible that they start out one way and they grow and they shape and they change but when it comes to the sexual ethic of the bible there's not a single change anywhere in scriptures it's a flat line it doesn't there's no development to it all right so we take this issue of gay marriage here's the catch Being clear about sexual morality is a long way from knowing how to relate to the issue of gay marriage today. Gay marriage in a pluralistic democratic nation. The issues are very complex. But let me cut to the chase, the kind of thing I'm trying to get at. I think we need to protect the rights of gays and lesbians. Without ever advocating homosexual behavior. By the way, I don't think marriage is a right. I've preached a lot on that. So I'm not saying we need to fight for gay marriage. But there are a lot of rights wrapped up in this debate that are rights from a biblical perspective. And this is tough stuff. We need politicians who deal with policy. We need lawyers who deal with law. We need social scientists. We need lots and lots of data. I think it's the same issue with Islam. Allah is not God. But we want to protect the rights of Muslims to coexist And to practice their faith within the United States without ever once saying our faiths are the same. This is complex stuff. Working its way out requires enormous skill. You know how you learn to improvise great in jazz? You practice a long time. We as a church, we've got to work hard at this. There's a naive and simplistic way of treating the Bible that says the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. I know the heart of that. I totally agree with. I I live with that. But sometimes knowing how to live it out in today's day and age is complex. All of this to say, there is no script for this moment. There are bad ways to improvise. Ways that are not true to the theme that's been developed. And there are good ways. So the Bible orients us. It gives us the framework and the knowledge so that we can make good decisions today. Now, this is one sermon of a whole series on the authority of the Bible. I'm trying to deal with one concept of its authority. It's very large. It's very complex. So I know I'm firing off lots of questions, lots of issues. Just come back. All right. We'll talk about more of them now let's, let's wrap this up by going back to where we started Luke 24 if you've got your Bible turn there With the, here we have the two disciples on the road to Emmaus Luke 24 they can't see Jesus for who he truly is until they see him within the larger overarching story of the Bible but here's the key I skipped over something Some of you who have read this. Know that I skipped a huge piece of it. Even after Jesus opened their eyes. And taught them the Bible. They still didn't see him. Luke is very clear. The disciples did not recognize Jesus. Even after he taught them the scriptures. They Accurately learned about Jesus. But they didn't see Jesus. They didn't know him in an intimate way. They were deeply emotionally affected. They said our hearts burned within us. But they didn't see Jesus. They only see Jesus when he breaks the bread. Look look at verse 30. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished and they said, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked? While he opened to us the scriptures? The Bible alone is not enough to know Jesus. It is not enough to live the Christian life. Christ-centered preaching is not enough. We need scripture and the meal Jesus gave us. We need scripture and sacrament. We need the word and the bread. The Bible and the table. The word and the Eucharist. That is absolutely Luke's point here. He broke the bread and blessed it and gave it to them and they saw him. Luke is only talking about a church gathered in worship around the table in Eucharist. So when Christians gather for worship, we come with a bigger need than learning truth about Jesus. We come as thirsty souls, lovers longing for our beloved. And it's at the table. When the table is combined with the word, That we meet him face to face. Not the table without the word. And not the word without the table. When we come to the table. We come face to face with Christ. The risen Christ. Nothing else the church does. Is anywhere close to this. No single act of the church. So thoroughly brings us. Into fellowship with Jesus. As when the church is gathered. Around the word. And comes to the table. At the table, we take Christ into ourselves, and Christ takes us into himself. This is our moment of greatest intimacy with Jesus. Scripture without the bread, it's merely intellectual or emotional. Depending on what flavor of church you go to. The Bible without the table turns into a magic act. The table turns into a magic act when we diminish Scripture and only keep the table. But when we have both, when Scripture is taught, centered on Jesus, and the bread is broken, aware of Jesus, Scripture, and sacrament together form the heart, the fuel you and I need for Christian living After all, what happens once the disciples recognize Jesus at the table? What were they doing at the beginning of the story? Does anybody remember? What were were they doing when Jesus walked up on them? They were leaving Jerusalem. Why? Dangerous place to be. But once they feasted on Christ in the word and the bread, what does it say they do? Look at verse 33. They arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. What happened? They had been fleeing. After scripture and table. Their eyes are open. And they become witnesses to Jesus. And they they had been fleeing from danger. Now they turn around. And walk right back into the danger. They had been confused about Jesus. Now they are witnesses of Jesus. In the danger zone. Their encounter with Jesus in scripture. And in Eucharist. Equips them to face life. To step back. Into the tough and complex and dangerous realities of this world. And the same is true for us. We come to church on Sunday. Tired. Exhausted. Beat down. Confused. Sad. Despairing. Scared. Exhausted from this world. And Christ meets us. And he teaches us. He teaches us to see him clearly and to look at the world clearly. And he feeds us. And then what do we do? We go back. We go back into the world. Back to the coal face of our vocations. Back to the danger zones of our family. Back to the scary places. Think back to the first meal at the beginning of creation. The moment is heavy with significance. It tells us in Genesis 3 when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. First meal in the Bible. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, it says, and he ate and the eyes of both of them were opened. When Luke tells the story about people's eyes being opened, this is what he's talking about. He's taking us back to the first meal. Here at the beginning of human history, evil came upon the human race. Death itself goes back to this moment. In this moment, the entire creation was subjected to cruelty and futility and sorrow. And now here in Luke 24, verse 30, Jesus serving the first meal of the new creation. And he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him evil and death, pain and suffering entered our world when a husband and wife had an illicit meal. And here, a husband and wife discover that the long darkness has finally broken into dawn. Here a husband and wife discover that the long curse has finally broken. Death itself has been defeated. God's new creation brimming with life and joy and new possibility has burst in upon the world of decay and sorrow. And this, the first meal, the first day of the new creation, it has been accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hearing Jesus' voice in scripture, knowing him in the breaking of the bread, this is the way dawn is breaking in the world today let's pray